You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the talk show where we interview UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Ash Paust, a third-year graduate student in the Department of Integrative Biology. Today, Ash is going to tell us what it's like to be a graduate student and about his work on evolution, early reptiles, and early mammals here in the United States and around the world. Welcome, Ash. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Well, tell us a little bit about yourself to start off. You uh, are a graduate student here at Berkeley. That's right. So I'm in the Department of Integrative Biology. It's in the College of Letters and Sciences. Um, And I am a PhD candidate, so I'm working to get that doctorate, I hope. Yeah. And you're in which year? So I'm in my third year. So I have passed the qualifying exams, which is a series of tests that we have to take uh, in order to move forward in the program. And right now I'm really working on getting the research that will, you know, get me through how many years are there in a PhD? Well, usually it's about five, but depending on what you're working on or you know what jobs are available afterwards, that can that can be stretched a little bit if it has to be. So let's get let's go back to before Berkeley. Uh, well, well, tell us actually. Let's start. Tell tell us a little bit about what you're interested in in the most general terms possible. So the reason you brought up dinosaurs is because I've done some of my past research on extinct reptiles from the time of the dinosaurs, including dinosaurs themselves. But really, that's a more a means to an end. Don't worry, I'll excitedly talk about dinosaurs in a couple <laughs> minutes. But for me, the, the really important thing is that we can use them to understand sort of past worlds. And a lot of the challenges that we're facing today that really, really occupy a lot of the minds of uh, people who are most in tune with things that are going to happen in the future so these are politicians and scientists, people in industry. A lot of the questions that are on their minds are, are related to where is the world going? So what will the world of the future be like? And the problem is that since the world of the present is such a tiny snapshot in time, you can't really do a very good job of guessing what the future is going to be unless you can keep taking more snapshots further and further back. And so I guess in the broadest sense, what I'm interested in is how has life changed uh, over the course of its existence on the planet, especially on land? Well, you know, no small question. And uh, how did you get interested in this? Is this something you've been interested in since you were a little boy or, you know, did it come up later in life? <laughs> uh, well, well, don't get me wrong. OK, I went through the period where uh, that every child in or many children, it seems, uh, go through where I thought dinosaurs were just about the coolest thing on the planet. Uh, my maybe. mom, you know, my mom just sent me pictures uh, on my last birthday of me at like three years old with an inflatable stegosaurus, uh, you know, inflatable um, di- dinosaur. Uh, any kind of dinosaur. It doesn't matter. They make us all happy. <laughs> Stuff cracks me up. Yeah. So, um, you know, I loved Triceratops at the time and, and T-Rex and all the big names. And the fact, the funny thing to me is children learn these names. And to be honest, even though now I am uh, involved in this as my occupation, I often end up uh, encountering children who come to visit the museums that I've worked at who are as good or better than me at rattling off species and, and generic names, you know, right off the bat. No, I I, I think I've seen that graph on the Internet somewhere that shows peak dinosaur knowledge at like age five or seven or something. <laughs> well, I just came from the academic meeting in Los Angeles for, for this field, the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology. So that's sort of the subset of this question of ancient times that I mostly work in is vertebrate paleontology, which is in essence, the study of past life that happened to have a backbone. So this is animals with bones, and they preserve really well in the fossil record because these bones are hard parts. So they stick around a lot longer than the, the skin and the hair that you know that uh, they also have, and certainly longer than other animals that don't have hard parts. There's not very many fossil worms. 
so this meeting was great um, in, in L.A., and we got to interface a lot with the museum in LA Natural History Museum there, and they certainly have encountered that same thing. I mean, they their peak of interest is definitely something you know between three and seven, and then the parents of three and seven year olds. So yeah, of course. So how did you end up getting involved? And in, as an undergraduate, what were some of the steps you took to pursue your interest? That's a great question. Um, I think that the key to my story is that you don't have to be a lifelong dinosaur enthusiast or a lifelong physics enthusiast or a lifelong person who wants to work in medicine in order to pursue these careers. Um, so I said I had my my bump, my three-year-old love of dinosaurs. And then essentially, along with my love of construction equipment, that sort of went away. <laughs> um, I got interested in a lot of other things when I was in um, college. Uh, this came back because I was actually trying to get out of my science requirements. The college that I went to, Augustana College in Illinois, offered um, a short course, essentially like a shortened semester out in the Rocky Mountains. And I thought, oh, well, that'll give me my credit. I don't, what is the subject of this? Geology. I don't really know anything about that. But it gave me the opportunity to be outside. So I signed on as quickly as I could and was lucky enough to not only have a great uh, three-week period out there learning a lot and running around in the, in the mountains, but I also encountered a totally new way of looking at the world. And so that psyched me up immensely. Um, for me, that was about the coolest revelation that I could have encountered, that Every landscape that you look at, every rock that you pick up on the beach has not only a current form, but an existence that stretches back into immeasurable depths of time. And that, for me, was like a opening the door to Alice's Wonderland. It's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And so you mentioned like a field course. What, what exactly does that entail? So it sort of varies where you encounter it in your career. The one that I went on at the beginning of my undergrad um, that I was lucky enough to, to get out of the classroom to do was essentially the same thing you would have had in the classroom, except that the examples they used weren't something you could hold in your hand. They were something that you could point to out of the car window or climb on. So that in that example, was much like taking like an introductory geology course, the same thing you might do at a community college or a university, except that I had the opportunity to really interface with the material. And that's something that even if you aren't able to take a course like that, you're just taking a class or even reading a book, you can get out and really do on your own really well, especially in California. There's such a wide range of geological formations that are out there. But this did lead me on a path that through my college career led me a little bit out of the geological sciences, although that was what I majored in and eventually went on to do my master's work in, and into the biological sciences because of that interest in how life had existed on those past landscapes. You're tuned in to 90.7 FM at KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and you're listening to The Graduates, the show where we interview graduate students about their work here on UC Berkeley campus. Today, I'm joined by dinosaur expert, Mr. Ash Poust. And, uh, you know, I was just bantering with him a little bit about the fact that something I never really thought about too much is that there are dinosaur remains here in the United States. For some reason, they just seem so exotic to me. I just feel like I have to go somewhere exotic to see, you know, fossils and and bones and remains of dinosaurs. But that's not the case, is it, Ash? No, I think a lot of people end up with sort of a similar interpretation just because there are these tales of adventure of people going to the Gobi Desert in the 20s and taking camels and Model Ts out into the desert. There's these stories of, you know, Paul Serino and others in the 90s going to, you know, the depths of Patagonia and out into the midst of Africa. But the fact is that some of the best fossils of dinosaurs, the best fossils of ancient mammals, the beasts that are much more closely related to us, uh, 
are right here in the United States and, and actually not necessarily all that far away. So I did my master's program in Montana, which is sort of like dinosaur hunting grounds. Like if you were able to go on a safari to, <laughs> to go get a dinosaur for your wall, um, which you shouldn't do. They should belong in museums. We'll talk about that more in I, a I just want to pet them and say all right, hello. Yeah, photo safari. Dis- okay, photo. yeah. Photo so if you're going to go on a photo safari back in time or today, I mean, Montana would really be the place you'd want to go. So I was lucky to be out there. Um, but even right here in California, uh, we've found hadrosaur dinosaurs uh, just down along the coast, like not all that far from here at all. You can get, see it essentially, the hills in which they're found um, from the five. So it's a pretty cool place to be. And you don't have to go that far, actually. But you have you have gone pretty far in, in your work and travels, have you not? So I've been lucky enough to do some work in a few places. Um, I mentioned that I had gone down to the uh, professional meeting for our society in LA. That's not so far, but we have had previous meetings in places as far flung as England and, and Canada. Um, and we're planning a meeting next year for, for Germany. So if we, for, for, excuse me, for professional reasons, I have managed to go other places, but the travel I most like to do that gets me the most excited is going out and hunting for the remains, the fossils themselves. So I've gotten the chance to hunt dinosaurs in a few different places, but the one that I think people might be the most interested in is that I've been a couple times to China to find dinosaurs, and particularly dinosaur eggs. Dinosaur eggs? Ah, okay, this brings a whole other dimension to the idea. So so you can what can you tell from a dinosaur egg? I mean, you you can tell what kind of dinosaur it came from or I mean, is there more than that? I mean, so that's a really it's diff- a really difficult question actually. Um when people first found dinosaur eggs, it was actually in France a really long time ago, and they thought, "Wow, really big birds used to live in France. I wonder why we don't see those around anymore." And it took a really long time until that expedition I mentioned previously to um the Gobi Desert, Mongolia in the 1920s before anyone really realized that no, these eggs are the same that are associated with these ancient monsters that we've been finding in England and in the United States and Canada. Um, And that really started to change the viewpoint that people had. People didn't really know what they were at the time. And so to realize that they were like reptiles and birds and that they had these hard-shelled eggs was, in the 1920s, really a fascinating thing. If you fast forward, you know, half a century, we started learning a lot more about not just the fact that they, you know, laid eggs, but the fact that they had parental care, they built nests, in fact, the males of some of these animals would guard these nests in some way. And those are the sort of details that start bringing together an entirely new picture of dinosaurs, um, much closer to their, their really still existing relatives. Not even really relatives, but their descendants, the birds that we see around us all the time. So whenever that scrub jay um, you see outside is squawking at you in the morning, you can blame the dinosaur for that. <laughs> okay. Blame you, dinosaur. Um, well, just going back – to this work in China, can you give the audience a little bit of an idea of what it's like to work in an international location, especially one like China? Yeah, that's a really exciting thing, actually, and something that I'm stoked to be able to uh, include in my career, especially at this time um, in world history when globalization is such a big factor. Um, It's not just something you see with the internet and with business, which is great, but it really allows us to open up the realms that we can explore for the scientific discoveries and allows us to work with some really cool people. So we've managed to make contacts at a number of museums that are in China that are doing their own work, and this sort of collaboration is really helpful. So I mentioned that Montana is a great place to find dinosaur fossils, and really the first dinosaur eggs found in North America and the first dinosaur embryos, so still in the egg, baby dinosaurs, that have been found anywhere were found in Montana. So when I went there, I was very excited to walk in the museum and see and hold for the first time a dinosaur egg, sort of one of those 
come to Jesus moments, if you will, mm-hmm. where you really see like, oh, this is a, the thing that I'm doing is really impressive. This is really amazing. But uh, having then gone later to China, I realized in some ways how minor of an experience that was, as important as those fossils are. China's fossil record, so the rocks that exist in China, are so plentiful with fossils, so full of fossils, that um, I, I couldn't believe my ears when they said that we had many dinosaur eggs. So I walk into this giant room, and the funny thing about China is that um, a lot of these museums they have were sort of built back in the like harsher days of communism, and so they were really built by the state, and they really can withstand anything. In the basement, the museum, uh, essentially like the caverns <laughs> underneath it where they hold all these fossils, they have shelves, et cetera, um, to keep it at a nice constant temperature and constant humidity so the stuff doesn't fall apart, are built like a giant safe in a bank. There's a huge turning lock mechanism oh, wow. and, you know, it swings open on ancient hinges and then you finally see and the lights go on down in this hallway. And I don't know if any of the listeners have seen um, Indiana, Indiana Jones. Jones. <laughs> and I swear to gosh, it was just like that. You you open you open this gate and it goes down and there I, there I was like, OK, show me where the dinosaur eggs are. I really want to see these. And a guy walks over and sh- the museum worker shows me this this crate and the entire crate is filled with dinosaur eggs. I was like, oh my God, I'm coming from Montana where there are so many dinosaur fossils and this is just such a wealth of them. And and he said, oh yeah, and it's this crate and everything else on this shelf and everything else on the next seven shelves down. Oh my goodness. It was ridiculous. So it was really wonderful that they have not only been collecting but been preserving in a museum setting these eggs so that we can study them. And my old advisor at Montana got a grant from the National Science Foundation to take rural students from Montana um, to China to not only experience the cultural interplay of you know eating uh, incredibly interesting Chinese foods, all of which I find super delicious, including things like you know crickets and whatnot that really <laughs> freak out these rural kids from Montana. They get that cultural experience, but they also get the experience of working in a real museum setting and eventually publishing papers. And so I and my advisors have been on several papers that these undergraduates have gotten the opportunity to write. And so I think it's a really good thing because not only does that expand our scientific knowledge, does that you know provide the opportunity for this cultural communication, but I, but I think that that's really at the basis of how we keep peace in our world is we find ways to to communicate across these international boundaries that are sort of more human. So it's pretty good stuff. Yeah, and uh, we're going to take a break in just a sec. But in the next section, I, I want to talk about more about interactions with students and especially here on campus. So why don't you just give us a little preview by telling us more where your research is at this point in time, and then uh, we'll talk about the future. Sure. Well, I have a lot of projects that are going on that sort of stem from this previous work in China that I'm excited to to be making headway on, some of those with former undergraduates. And then one place I'm really excited to see my work going is actually out of the time of the dinosaurs. And I want to keep my fingers in that because that's certainly where my first love is, that ancient world that's so different from the one we live in today. But right after the time of the dinosaurs is when our own group, the mammals, came into flourishing um, reign of the world after after the ancient sort of successful lineages has died out. And that's a pretty cool place to sort of answer some very different questions. So I'm, I'm stoked about that. You're listening to KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM. My name is Tesla. And this is The Graduates, where we interview graduate students here at Berkeley about their work. And I'm joined today by Ash Paust in the Integrated Biology Department. Let's see. We're talking. We were just leaving off talking about how you're getting more interested in ancient mammals. So what, what exactly is an ancient mammal? 
So a lot of the big animals that you see walking around on the land surface today, including ourselves, are animals that give live birth, have hair. So this is sort of the eighth grade definition of a mammal. And all the animals that I'd be talking about would fit that definition perfectly. But a lot of the mammals that evolved came around about the end of the time of the dinosaurs were really small. They lived sort of small and furtive lives, running around like a vole or a mouse, scuttering around. They may have been nocturnal. Um, and people often refer to this as you know living under the footfalls of the dinosaurs, trying to just stay out of their way. But when the dinosaurs died out, more or less suddenly, 65 million years ago, that space was suddenly opened up. And so there's this question of how and why did mammals take over the world? Now, you can actually argue whether they did because there's a lot of lizards and there are way more species of birds, which and are actually insects, still dinosaurs. Don't forget the insects. Right, exactly. So they've been here forever. I don't know if you've had a roach in your house, but <laughs> let's hope not. The idea about the mammals taking over, though, fascinates me because they very quickly, on geologic timescales, millions of years, but still very quickly evolved to be very, very different from one another. So this is an idea that we call disparity. Their body shape, their behavior uh, has a wide range as opposed to all being sort of small and mouse-like. And I think that's an amazing opportunity to look at the fossils from the time period to see how animals um, were evolving and changing in response to this essentially new world that they encountered. And that has a lot of parallels um, to some of the extinction things that are happening in, in our world today and how animals might respond to that. So it's an exciting thing to be working on. So you mentioned fossils. I know we have some fossils here on campus, uh, not just in the museums. I heard there's even some in the Campanile. But uh, do you, So you must work a little bit in the UC Museum of Paleontology. Yeah, so working at the UCMP is fantastic. It's a museum that gets um, as many visitors per year working on exciting fossil projects as any museum in the world. Um, and it's one of the largest museums in, in North America. So that in and of itself is, is great. But we also have a really large, diverse group of scientists who work there and we'll all have students of their own. Um, and the museum scientists all have really cool research projects going as well. And so that has a, been a wonderful thing for me to be involved with. And um, – it's it's really yeah it's a really good environment for these kind of things. And there are even a few undergraduates running around in there. Do you do you have any undergraduates of your own under your wings? So I don't have an undergraduate of my own, but our my lab. I work with Kevin Padian, who's sort of a renowned paleontologist, um, working in the Mesozoic mostly, and now doing some work on on fossil bats. But uh, we have three or four undergraduates who work in our lab, and many of the other people involved with the UCMP uh, invite undergraduates to work on projects with them or have uh, preparatory positions. You know, they're working on cleaning these fossils so that other people can study them. So there's a wide range of uh, things that the UCMP does, the UC Museum of Paleontology um, does, that allow undergraduates to get involved, start their own research, participate in that of others, generally get experience. And this actually extends even outside the realm of science. We have a lot of people who are in uh, museum studies who are doing research um, or even just uh, doing work at the UCMP. We have an artist in our lab who is doing some really cool reconstructions um, for my advisor of those of those ancient bats. So it's a really cool, it's very integrative uh, as, as yeah. fits the name of our department, in integrative situation. Uh, I think we, uh, we actually have some English majors in my lab as well, and they're doing some science writing on the blog uh, and updating posters and things like that. So a lot of opportunities for students. What are some of the other responsibilities that you have as a graduate student here at Berkeley? So one of my favorite things about being a graduate student is that it really gives you a diversity of occupations that you need to become uh, conversant in in order to you know, succeed in that, in that job. And so I like that. I like the variety. 
I have to teach. So I teach almost every semester. I've taught classes ranging from geology to human anatomy. One of my favorite classes to teach is human anatomy, which is mostly made up of pre-med undergraduates. In addition to teaching, I've often worked in the museum in the preparatory position. So next semester, I'm going to be the lab manager for the UCMP prep lab, which is sort of a really nice privilege. We've had some really talented people working in that lab, and we don't have anyone there currently. And so um, getting the chance to spend time in there and do a lot of prep work and and keep it open for those undergraduate volunteers and stuff is, is really a nice thing to get to do. And you know, I think there's a lot of other responsibilities as well that you have to do as a graduate student. There's a lot of participation with the department and with the museum. And mostly I see that all as a positive, um, but all of it takes time sometimes away from the research that I like to be doing. So, so speaking of research, where where is your research taking you? Uh, not, not just the research itself, but career-wise, can you give us a little vision or, you know, an insight into your vision of the future? Sure. Um, there's – for people who go into the sciences um, – which I really truly believe that anyone who has that as an interest um, can find a way to do. So you really shouldn't be put off just because you feel like you're not good at math or something. There really are a lot of avenues that one can take out of an education in the sciences. Everything from writing, as you say, to uh, public policy. Um, there's a dearth, a lack of of people in law and politics who know enough about science to sort of help make informed decisions. Um, and so that's a something that I hope will get remedied in the future. Um, and we're certainly coming into a time where medicine is, is as important or more important than ever. And having the, the perspective, even the evolutionary perspective, is a really important thing. That's For true. me, though, I, again, I like this variety of experience. I love interacting with and educating um, young minds. So to encounter like the, the variety of people and to encounter the variety of experience um, that you get in a university setting is something that's really exciting to me. So I hope that I'll be able to continue in, uh, in a university. I'd like to become a professor. And what – what would your research be if you could choose? Well, that's a hard one. Well, certainly, like I said, I definitely want to keep my fingers in exploring the ancient past. Dinosaurs are sort of just too cool to abandon entirely. But a lot of these ancient mammals were dinosaur-like in their own way. They're big. They had crazy horns, long fangs. So they were herbivores uh, in a land that that had just seen flowers only very recently and there were, in which there was no grass. So figuring out the way in which they lived I think is an exciting avenue for the future. But, uh, yeah, my heart is still back there with those dinosaur eggs just a little bit. <laughs> I can understand that. Well, uh, do you have any advice for future paleontologists or, or people who just might be a little bit interested in dinosaurs? So it depends on what you want to do with it. If you want a lifelong interest in ancient life, it's easy to do. Um, the UCMP is not a museum in the same sense that some museums are where you have, there's a lot of exhibits or whatever. But you're welcome to come and look at our uh, – giant T-Rex skeleton that's in, in our building. And uh, every year at Cal Day, which is a day in which the University of California, Berkeley, opens up so that everyone can come in, the UCMP, uh, the Paleontology Museum, has exhibits set out, and we're all there to answer questions. So we'd love it if you would come to that. But if you're actually thinking about going into paleontology as research, I certainly encourage you and just say, think about rocks and, and animal life as much as you can. And maybe even contact a few professors, see if they're looking for some student volunteers. Yeah, there's often there's often volunteer positions ready for um, people to go out in the field or, you know, just to even to interact. And so it's, there's opportunities out there. So any last, any last comments, uh, Ash? Uh, I would just tell people to, when they look around them as they're on their drive to work, think about the ancient life that used to even be here in the Bay Area, um, you know, some of the work that we're doing in the prep lab is from the new Caldecott tunnel and, and there were you know, rhinoceroses and camels and 
saber-toothed cats running around here not all that long ago. And so the world keeps changing and the the past is just about as cool as the present, but I'm sure the future will be even cooler. And they, I know they pulled a few a few mammoths out of the area too. Oh yeah, yeah. so they were, they were all here. Yeah, so lots going on here in the Bay and especially here at Berkeley. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank our guest, Mr. Ashley Paust, for joining us here in the studio for this episode of The Graduates. Ash is a third-year graduate student in the Department of Integrative Biology here at UC Berkeley campus. My name is Tesla Munson, and you've been listening to The Graduates, the talk show where we interview graduate students about their work here at Berkeley. And don't forget to tune in two weeks from today for another episode of The Graduates. That's right, we'll be back at 9 a.m. on Tuesday, April 22nd, and we'll be joined by deep-sea expert Jenna Judge. Until then, keep your dial fixed on 90.7 FM at KALX Berkeley.